I'm uh, really, really pleased to be able to introduce um, uh, Dr. Cao Chua to you guys. Um, in a departure from my usual, I invited someone who's not a hospitalist. Uh, so I, I can't, I, he's a general pediatrician, although he does have a Ph.D. from that little institution to the south called Harvard. Uh, in, uh, in, um, it is a health services researcher and um, does really exciting work in how to define um, overuse in pediatrics. And, uh, and instead of telling you his um, CV, what I'm going to tell you is he told me his most interesting thing is that he got to drive in Obama's motorcade um, a couple years ago, but he was considered expendable. The, 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 the Secret Service told him that um, if we get attacked, they were not going to defend him. He was on his own. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Kalchua. Thank you. I should also note that Tim Kaine was my passenger, so he was also considered expendable. So uh, uh, I'm going to uh, thank you, of course, uh, for attending, and uh, thank you, for Sh uh, Sean, for inviting me. Um, the title of my talk is Defining and Measuring Overuse in Pediatrics, and I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, I'm going to start uh, by talking about the definition of overuse, in particular focusing on some of the controversies surrounding um, what overuse is and how that might impact research into overuse. Um, and then I'll talk about um, two, two sets of projects. One um, was, which was a paper published in Pediatrics in 2016 on measuring um, overuse in commercially insured children. Uh, I'll also uh, pre present some preliminary data, uh, new data, on some projects that I've been doing on um, antibiotic overuse. So um, just to start off with, um, I wanted to kind of articulate some of the more common uh, definitions of overuse in the literature. Uh, probably the most commonly cited one is by Chasson et al., who wrote um, on behalf of the IOM in 1998. He defined overuse as providing a service when the potential for harm exceeds the, the possible benefit. So that might include services where there's no, no, no benefit um, but it, some potential for harm, as well as services where there's some small amount of benefit, but the magnitude of that benefit is outweighed by the potential for harm. <clears throat> David Baker at the Joint Commission um, wrote a more recent definition in 2013 that agreed with uh, Chasson's definition, but also included services that had a, quote, undesirable trade-off between benefits and expenditures. <clears throat> Um, so, for example, cervical cancer screening for most children um, is uh, something that would be, uh, if, you, if you kind of did that for every child, you might have some early detection for a few children, but the, the cost of that would be almost <clears throat> prohibitive. Um, so the only difference between these two uh, definitions is really that Baker kind of explicitly recognizes that high healthcare spending is a harm to society, um, whereas the uh, Chasson definition was a little bit more nebulous on that point. Now, if you accept that definition, um, it becomes uh, clear why reducing overuse um, uh, is so appealing, because overuse essentially drives up healthcare spending without improving quality, in some cases, worsening it. Uh, and uh, so therefore, reducing overuse can actually improve quality with, while decreasing spending. Um, and normally, that's not the case. Normally, in order to improve quality in many situations, you actually have to increase the amount of money that you spend. This is a rare win-win um, in healthcare. Uh, we don't really see this opportunity very often. And indeed, the Choosing Wisely initiative um, kind of made this argument. This was an initiative essentially where um, medical societies across the country um, came up with lists of services that should be avoided because they just don't um, improve value. Um, but despite this opportunity, um, it still appears that, um, there's, that overuse is widespread. So let me just kind of briefly go over some of the empirical uh, evidence for this. 
Um, on the adult side, um, uh, of course, we're at Dartmouth, so I, I would be remiss not to mention that Dartmouth's Atlas of Healthcare in the early 90s, um, or the kind of mid-90s, started uh, demonstrating uh, wide regional variation in Medicare spending between geographic regions, um, suggestive of rampant um, waste. Um, Aaron Schwartz more recently used Medicare claims to demonstrate that about 26 to 45 percent of Medicare beneficiaries receives one of 26 low-value services in a year. Carrie Kala, who's a health economist here at Dartmouth, um, also um, demonstrated high overuse for 11 services de uh, defined as low-value by choosing wisely. For example, 46.5 percent of Medicare beneficiaries undergoing a low-risk non-cardiac procedure received some sort of preoperative cardiac testing, like an EKG or stress test. So on the pediatric side, um, both Sean and David have worked um, on uh, this Dartmouth Atlas of Children's Healthcare in Northern New England, uh, which was published in 2013 and demonstrated wide regional variation in pediatric care for common conditions um, in the states of New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. And so, for example, um, one of the findings is that children in Lebanon um, are 2.7 times more likely to undergo tonsillectomy than children in Burlington. Um, similarly, there have been a lot of studies using the FIS database, um, which you may have seen, um, which have shown kind of wide variation in care for conditions like asthma and bronchiolitis among tertiary U.S. children's hospitals. And then finally, in a teaser of the, of the paper that I will present um, later, um, I've, uh, my, my research suggests that about 9.6 or percent or about 1 in 10 commercially insured children receive one of 20 low-value services in 2014. Now, this brings up a question, which is, if reducing overuse is such an obvious win-win, why is it so widespread? Why do we have any overuse at all, given this amazing opportunity to improve quality without, while potentially decreasing spending? So there are a couple of explanations that um, have been offered in the literature. Um, so one is simply that Providers don't know the benefits and the harms of interventions, that essentially this is a lack of education issue, and that if you were to, to kind of uh, increase education and awareness, that you would be able to eliminate some forms of overuse. Another kind of more subtle possibility is that providers may know that the average effect of an intervention is zero, but think that their, their intervention may work for their patient anyways. And this is the idea, that just gets at the idea of mean versus variance, right? Um, so even if the mean of effect of an intervention is zero across a bunch of patients, that kind of hides the fact that there are some responders and some non-responders. So maybe a physician or a provider may say, well, I'm hoping that you're going to be one of the responders. A third possibility, which is uh, more pessimistic, is that doctors, uh, providers know um, what, that, the, that the care that they're providing is low value, but do it anyways for some sort of self-interested reason. So the most egregious example would be inducing uh, care, uh, essentially unnecessary care, because you financially benefit. Uh, this may be more common for like high reimbursement services, for example, under fee-for-service. Um, this idea of defensive medicine, that um, ordering a, a low value uh, test may actually not benefit the patient, but it benefits the provider because it may decrease uh, their likelihood of being sued. And then discomfort for, with uncertainty, the idea that uh, ordering a low-value test may actually psychologi psychologically assuage the provider um, that they are doing everything that they can um, to uh, essentially not miss anything. So I think these are all important. Uh, there's no doubt that these play a role in, in overuse. But I think there's a more fundamental issue here, which is simply that people may not agree in the first place about what constitutes overuse in the first place, right? Um, so this almost is, this is almost kind of goes without saying, but 
if you're going to define overuse, you have to have a definition of what is appropriate care. And oftentimes, for example, um, you might look at a clinical practice guideline written by a medical special society or look at choosing wisely uh, to determine the circumstances under which something is appropriate or not. Now, any kind of notion of appropriateness is inherently a subjective judgment that involves first deciding which harms and benefits you're going to count um, in, in your calculation, but also how much to weigh them. And because of the subjectivity, there is room for disagreement. And if, and there are probably going to be, and there are providers who will disagree with the judgments made in, for example, clinical practice guidelines. Um, when this is the case, what ends up happening is the providers will, provide, will order care that they think is not low value, um, that they don't think is overuse. They're acting on the patient's behalf, but that appears to be overuse according to this external um, kind of uh, definition. So the example, um, you know, we know that antibiotics for colds are, are, are considered to be overuse. Um, if you look at the guidelines for this, what are they focusing on? They're focusing on, for example, the lack of physical benefits to the patient, the lack of physical harm to the, the risk of physical harm to the patient, and the risk of physical harm to society via increased antimicrobial uh, resistance. So this is kind of basically, um, essentially these guidelines are essentially pro are proposing a definition of value that mostly focuses on the kind of the physical consequences um, of this practice. But they don't consider, for example, the emotional, the potential emotional benefit of reassuring the patient that their illness is being treated aggressively, or even kind of this financial benefit to the patient, which is that, you know, writing a cheap uh, antibiotic prescription is actually sometimes better for the patient in terms of both time and cost relative to a follow-up visit. Uh, these are the, the, la the fact that the guidelines kind of, you know, don't consider these explicitly is itself a subjective judgment. It happens to be one that I agree with, um, uh, and that probably most of us would agree with, but many providers do not. Um, and that, and that, that, I think, is kind of one of the reasons why we see this, this practice being so widespread in the first place. It's just a disagreement about which harms and benefits we want to value in that situation. Now, there is no way that I can definitively make the statement that, you know, you know, one form of value, one conception of value is correct. Um, that's a, a much longer discussion. But what I will say is that um, the, the fact that there isn't consensus about what constitutes overuse is, is kind of a problem uh, for people like me who tried to measure this. Um, because ultimately, whatever definition you use, uh, somebody's not going to be happy. And, in, and as I found, um, just personal experience, in some cases, um, it can be offensive to, to, to people because you are essentially uh, calling into judgment their, their, their own, maybe their own clinical practice. Uh, I don't think there are any easy solutions to this problem. Um, you know, uh, you could, for example, try to be more inclusive and say, I'm going to incorporate more competing notions of appropriateness by allowing for more exceptions in which um, care could be appropriate. But at some level, um, if you become overly inclusive, then you're not going to be able to measure any overuse at all because it all seems reasonable, right? So I don't think that's the way to go. Um, I think it's better just to have to take a firm stance about what you think appropriate care is and just be prepared to justify it and also be prepared for any potential blowback. So um, kind of just to summarize this, this, this portion of um, the, the presentation, um, I think we are, uh, the definition of overuse seems easy to understand, harms exceeding benefits. Uh, but in real life, it's actually quite difficult to apply and operationalize because there's not consensus over which harms and benefits to consider and how much to weigh them. Okay, so with that, 
kind of caveat, um, I think I'll, I'll, I'm going to move on to some of the empirical work that I've done to measure overuse in pediatrics. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> first um, start by presenting um, this paper, Use of Low-Value Pediatric Services Among uh, the Commercially Insured. Uh, and I want to uh, acknowledge my co-authors, Aaron Schwartz, um, Anna Vollerman, Rena Conti, and Albert Huang. And I just want to uh, start off by uh, giving you a sense of what the literature was like, um, the state of the literature at the time I started this project. Um, so as I mentioned, um, a work from this institution and others have shown, uh, had shown uh, wide variation in pediatric care uh, between regions and hospitals. And there had been some uh, literature that more kind of directly um, demonstrated overuse of specific interventions in specific settings for specific conditions. For example, albuterol for bronchiolitis in children's hospitals. But what was missing um, were, were three things. Um, the first was that um, studies had not directly assessed the prevalence in, of overuse in pediatrics across multiple intervention settings and conditions. Second, um, the, the financial burden of overuse in pediatrics to patients and society was not, had not been quantified. And third, there were few measures of overuse in pediatrics um, that had been developed at the time. So out of 117, 117 uh, uh, quality, pediatric quality measures that are endorsed by the National Quality Forum, which is kind of a gold standard of sorts. Only seven of them um, related to the domain of overuse. And in a, in a systematic review of pediatric quality measures uh, published by Samantha House here at um, Dartmouth uh, that came out very shortly after my, um, my, 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 this study was published, um, only 20 out of 386 measures related to overuse. So there was a real deficit in our ability to measure this, this, this kind of this problem. So my um, study essentially set out to measure the prevalence and financial burden of overuse in pediatrics across a variety of conditions, settings, and treatments. The approach that I took um, to do this was to construct 20 measures that directly identify overuse, pediatric overuse in claims data. And I used claims data because they were population-based, uh, because they contained spending information and importantly, because they captured utilization across multiple care settings. Uh, whereas if you use something like the FIS database, you're only just looking at children's hospitals, for example. And I would just note that this, uh, this kind of research followed similar um, <clears throat> studies that have been done by people like Aaron Schwartz and Kerry Kala, um, developing claims-based measures of overuse in the Medicare population. Now, um, just to talk a little bit about how, how these measures are developed. Um, so in the fall of 2015, um, our research team began uh, sifting through um, uh, low-value services in pediatrics. Uh, and, we, and we looked at sources like Choosing Wisely. We looked at uh, uh, things that were recommendations that were grade D, um, which is don't, basically do not do, according to the U.S. Preventive Task Force. We looked at the U.K.'s uh, National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence's do not do lists. Um, we looked at clinical practice guidelines published by U.S. specialty societies like the AAP and Infectious Disease Society of America. And then finally, evidence reviews by the Cochrane Collaborative. Through this kind of process, we actually compiled um, over 300 candidate low, service, low value services that could have been, uh, we could have you know, taken further for measure development. But in the end, we had to exclude the vast majority of them because uh, judgments of appropriateness required some sort of information that just was not present in claims. So, for example, IV fluids are commonly overused for gastroenteritis, but if all you see is a diagnosis code for gastroenteritis and a CPT code for IV fluids or something like that, you have no idea what, how severe that particular patient is and therefore um, no ability to judge whether it's appropriate. So that actually ended up excluding the vast majority of these 300 um, services. 
The other exclusion we made was we kind of identified things that were likely to be kind of small potatoes um, in, uh, infrequent in, in pediatrics, such as EEGs for headaches. And ultimately kind of went through an iterative process, uh, settled on 20 services that we think that we thought were reasonable to kind of operationalizing claims um, using data elements such as diagnosis codes, procedure codes, demographic information, et cetera. Now, um, there were three kind of subclasses of, um, of low value services um, that we, um, that, uh, among those 20 services, those 20 measures. Um, so there were six diagnostic tests, including population-based screening for vitamin D deficiency, which is a choosing wisely recommendation. Uh, IgE and skin prick tests for children with eczema, uh, again, a choosing wisely recommendation. RSV testing in children with bronchiolitis, which was based off the AAP uh, clinical practice guideline. Blood testing in children with a simple fibro seizure, again, uh, an AAP guideline. Cervical cancer screening in children, which is a U.S. preventive task force recommendation. And then group A test strep testing in children less than three, uh, which is an infectious disease society of America recommendation. There were also five low-value imaging tests, um, x-rays for the face and, and head and face trauma, ultrasounds um, of, the, of the testicles, essentially, in children with undescended testes, uh, sinus imaging in children with acute sinusitis, neuroimaging in children with simple febrile seizures, and similarly, neuroimaging in, in, in children with headaches. Prescription drugs, um, there were nine measures, um, cough and cold medicines for children under the age of six, um, antibiotics for um, a broad variety of conditions, including upper respiratory infections, otitis media with effusion, swimmer's ear, tonsillectomy, bronchiolitis, oral steroids for bronchiolitis, short-acting beta agonists for bronchiolitis, and finally, acid blockers for infants with reflux. Now, um, for each of these measures, these 20 measures, um, in order to kind of quantify prevalence um, as opposed to just looking at service counts, we defined a denominator of individuals who are potentially eligible to receive the service. So for example, uh, cough and cold medicines in young children, that measure, the denominator was children under the age of six, and antibiotics for upper respiratory infection, uh, the denominator was children who had a diagnosis of upper respiratory infection during the year. Now, in the main analysis, um, we constructed measures that were uh, really uh, deliberately uh, constructed to be highly specific. And what do I mean by that? Um, what, I meant, what I mean is that these measures were designed only to capture care that was, in fact, low value or inappropriate, potentially at the expense of making the net measure so narrow, overly narrow, that you may actually miss some instances of appropriate care. So in other words, we were willing to sacrifice sensitivity for specificity. Okay? Now, in order to come up with a very highly specific measure, um, we had to undergo a very time-consuming process in which we first uh, kind of reviewed the literature to determine the circumstances in which the application of a particular service may have been appropriate. Uh, and then we had to kind of operationalize these circumstances uh, into some exclusions that using data available in claims. This is the part that actually took the better part of four months um, to essentially comb through the ICD-9 manual, for example, to kind of come up with uh, you know, all of the codes that, um, that, that, that um, relate to the exclusion that you're trying to operationalize. Let me give you an example. Um, I can't obviously go over all 20 of my measures for the, for the sake of time, although I'm happy to talk about any of the individual ones if you, if you want. Um, so for the oral antibiotics after tonsillectomy measure, um, essentially the denominator here was just uh, we first identified children who 
uh, underwent tonsillectomy based on uh, a current procedure ter terminology code. Um, and then we defined um, the, the kind of the inclusion criteria as any antibiotic prescription fill on the day of tonsillectomy or within the, 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 the following three days. The exclusions that we made were, well, uh, we wanted to, we, we looked back um, on the day of the antibiotic field and looked to see if there were any um, antibiotics on the day of the toxicity or the previous three days uh, for any sort of bacterial infection that may have uh, potentially uh, made the antibiotic, uh, you know, reasonable, such as uh, an ear infection. Um, and then we also excluded uh, children who had any uh, diagnosis code indicating a complex chronic condition like Maybe they, uh, kids with a vent or a trach, uh, people who are immunodeficient, uh, because uh, it may be arguably uh, reasonable to, you know, uh, treat those those immunocompromised patients a bit more, more a bit more aggressively. So this gives you a sense of the complexity of actually operationalizing those exclusions. So this is just the first one about bacterial infections. This is a short list. This is not even the complete list of bacterial infections, but but it just kind of gives you a sense of how difficult it really is to actually translate these exclusions into um, something that can be uh, operationalized in claims. Okay, um, so now that we developed those 20 measures, what did we do with them? Well, we took data from uh, a database called um, the Truven Market Scan Commercial Claims and Encounters Database uh, in 2013 and 2014. So market scan, for those of you who haven't uh, come across this, is actually a convenient sample of claims from about 47 million uh, people uh, who receive insurance from over 100 employers in all 50 states. And by and large, many of the data contributors to market scan are self-insured large firms that contract with um, uh, insurers essentially to administer benefits, but that don't, but they pull risk by you know, within. The, they don't they don't use the insurer to pull risk. They pull risk within their own firm. Uh, 2014 was the year in which we uh, measured low-value care, um, and then we used 2013 just as a look-back year in case we wanted to look for, example, um, a diagnosis code indicating a complex chronic condition um, for, for something like that. So because we needed um, that look-back year, we ended up uh, subsetting to about 4.4 million children aged 0 to 18 who actually had 24 months of continuous insurance, or as it were, um, continuously insured since birth, depending on uh, if you're talking about a baby or not. Um, overall, that 4.4 million number represents about 5.6% of the children in, U in the U.S. and about 12% of the 37 million privately insured uh, U.S. children, so about one in eight privately insured children. We had measures of use, including the percentage of the denominator who received each service at least once during the year, uh, and then across all the 20 services, uh, essentially the percentage of the sample who received any low-value care at all. We also um, measured spending by calculating out-of-pocket spending, which is um, the sum of coinsurance, copays, and deductibles. And then also looked at total spending, which is just the sum of out-of-pocket spending plus any reinsurer reimbursement. So our sample um, was about... Uh, pretty evenly divided between uh, children aged 0 to 5, 6 to 12, um, and 13 to 18. About half of our sample was male, and about 85% lived in an urban area, and children came from all 50 states and the District of Columbia. So if you look at the, if you compare these demographics to the U.S. children um, as a whole, in the, um, they actually match up pretty well. So, um, 
So this is the kind of the main, uh, the main findings. So in terms of out-of-pocket spending across all 20 measures, um, the total out-of-pocket spending uh, was $9.2 million. Uh, total spending, which is uh, this out-of-pocket plus reinsurer insurer reimbursement, was about $27 million, suggesting that about a third of all um, totals of all spending on low-value care in this, in this population uh, was paid for by families. Um, about 4% of the sample received at least one of the, uh, the low-value diagnostic tests. 0.4% uh, received one of, the, um, uh, one of the five imaging tests. 6.1% received one of the low-value prescription drugs. And about 9.6%, or about 1 in 10, received any of these services um, at least once during the year. Now, this uh, pie chart um, basically breaks down um, individual instances of low-value service use and kind of which proportion were, were, were represented by diagnostic tests, imaging tests, and prescription drugs. Uh, the take-home here is that prescription drugs are, were the most common type of low-value care because and that makes sense because not only are there more measures, but also uh, prescribing drugs is very common. Um, but in contrast, imaging tests were only 2.8% of all, of all the, the service counts, suggesting that you know, imaging is indeed uh, the, these kind of uh, receiving these low-value imaging tests is actually a pretty, pretty rare event. But despite this rareness, if you look at the distribution of out-of-pocket spending, um, almost 26.7% of all out-of-pocket spending came from, this, from these low-value imaging tests. So they weren't very common, but they were extremely expensive to patients. And similarly, if you're looking at total spending, um, they, again, not very common, but di uh, represented almost 33% of all spending um, you know, captured by our measures. So, some of the kind of general uh, patterns of findings that we noticed um, that we had some measures that affected uh, many individuals, um, but low proportions to the denominator. So, for example, vitamin D screening um, was a measure that um, affected 54,000 people, um, which, because our denominator was defined as all children, um, which is 4.4 million, that doesn't, it doesn't look all that impressive, 1.2%, even though the absolute number is, is, is pretty large. Um, and in other cases, you had conditions that were pretty rare, like cryptorchidism, undescended testes. Um, there, the denominator size was only 5,161, but of those, um, 894 children received um, an ultrasound, or about 17%. And then, uh, just to kind of look at um, across um, all, all of the 20 measures, here are the ones that were the most prevalent. Um, so oral antibiotics for colds um, affected 142,000 uh, children, which is about 3% of the sample. Um, testing for group A strep in children less than 3 um, affected 2.2% of the sample. And I'll just also note that here the denominator was children under the age of 3. And um, I think uh, 11 to 12, I think it was 12% of children under the age of 2 got a strep, under 3 got a strep test um, during the year. Um, screening for vitamin D deficiency um, as, uh, was, as I mentioned, about 1.2% uh, of the sample. Uh, oral antibiotics for otitis media with effusion, again, 1.2% of the sample. And then acid blockers for infants with uncomplicated reflux, 0.7% of the sample. So this gives you a sense of which of these services are most likely to affect the, the, the greatest number of, of, of children. So to kind of briefly summarize the main findings of this paper, um, <clears throat> The first uh, and most important finding is that 9.6% uh, of the children received um, one of the 20 low-value services in 2014, 
And while that number may not blow you out of the water, I would just 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 note that this is just these these is only 20 measures that we're talking about. So if you can show that essentially with just 20 measures that 10% of children um, receive low value care, that's to me seems like evidence that this may be a widespread phenomenon, especially when you consider that children don't actually see their doctors all that much and don't have a lot of opportunities to receive low value care. Um, and so I think those two things together, um, at least in my mind, suggest that this may be a widespread phenomenon. Um, also, um, one-third of spending on low-value services would pay out-of-pocket by families. And I think um, we all know that cost-sharing um, is increasing and not decreasing um, as we move towards high-deductible plans. Um, uh, the, the potential um, for us as pediatric providers to inflict f uh, financial harm on patients is only going to get, you know, kind of higher over time. Uh, total spending on the 20 services was $27 million. Now, just bear in mind that we're, we're only talking about, we're talking about a sample that represented about one in eight children. So if you make the strong assumption that this, is, this, this sample is representative and basically multiply that by 8.2 or so, um, you end up with an estimate of about $227 million uh, annually just for privately insured children alone, not to mention publicly insured children, obviously. So, um, you know, some caveats to this, to this work. Um, obviously, um, you know, the, probably the biggest one uh, in my mind is that um, we didn't do chart review um, to, to validate each one of these measures, and so it is possible um, and actually probably probable that there is some misclassification of um, appropriate care as low value because simply we just didn't have the information available uh, to be able to make that assessment. Um, uh, you know, market scan is actually um, a highly, it may not be a representative sample compared to other privately insured children because, um, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the insurance, a lot, a lot of these people have, work for self-insured large firms. So it's possible, for example, that their, their coverage may be particularly generous. So if that's the case, then um, uh, other kind of children who have less generous coverage, generous coverage may actually be paying more out-of-pocket um, relative to um, the sample that, um, that I used. There's also uncertain generalizability to publicly insured children. And I can actually see this going both two ways, because on the one hand, uh, publicly insured children have access barriers that may make them less likely to receive care of any value, regardless of whether it's high or low value. But at the same time, it could be that once they do receive care, there may be some systematic disparity in the quality of care that they do receive, which would tend to increase their rates of overuse. So that's kind of an interesting question that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, there's also, um, as I mentioned, this is certainly an underestimate of the true prevalence and financial burden of overuse. Not only was this just 20 measures, but um, I didn't um, really do a full cost accounting. Um, I only just looked at direct, direct medical spending associated with these services, not things like um, you know, uh, the ER visit for anaphylaxis from an unnecessary antibiotic, right, which could be costly. So uh, just, to, um, uh, just as the take-home points, um, I think this paper uh, suggests that overuse in pediatrics occurs frequently across multiple conditions, settings, and treatments. And furthermore, that among privately insured children, at least, uh, about one-third of the spending on low-value services is paid for, paid for by family, families, demonstrating that overuse can cause financial harm. Okay. Now, uh, at this point... Um, I'm going, to I'm going to present some unpublished research, so I think the video <coughs> streaming needs to be taken down.